how am I going to do this? I'll leave it like this. Is that better for you? Yeah, I got to stay. Okay. You're I, so funny. <laughs> She's having a moment. I'm having a moment. She can't see what we're doing. I've got one headphone on, one headphone off, <laughs> trying not to listen to myself too loudly. Even though that is exactly what's happening. (laughs) Welcome to another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Brecken. And we're here today with a special guest, Rachel Dreary of Gem Legacy. Hi, Rachel. Hi, guys. And you are coming to us from Michigan, right? Yes, very cold in Detroit. Snowy. Is it snowy? Did you guys get hit with that Thanksgiving blizzard? We did. It was like nine inches, but it's all kind of melted now. So we're in a warming trend. Yeah, we we got hit with about 18 inches. We went down to Utah and... Uh, the drive was terrible. We saw like 12 cars all over the road, a semi. It was nuts, but we're here. All right. So how we, how we typically start our interviews is just getting to know you a little bit more and your, I guess, introduction to the gem industry. So tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so I, like Jonathan, am a second generation in the, in the gem and jewelry industry. Um, so my dad, Roger Derry, is a colored gemstone dealer. Um, he's been in the business since 1981. So I kind of inherited a love of gemstones. Yeah, a and phenomenal cutter as well. Yes, he, he loves to be a perfectionist. So we specialize in that, but uh, we love to travel to East Africa. He's been there 38 times. And so over the course of those, those many trips was really how Gem Legacy was born. Uh, and I kind of left and wanted nothing to do with the uh, family business and found my way back and decided it wasn't so bad after all. So. I think that happens to everybody. <laughs> yeah, I, I did something similar. <clears throat> he left and then came back. I think the prodigal son. In order to realize <laughs> how good you actually have it in the family yep. business. So, yeah, uh, I think you come back with more appreciation too, don't you think, Jonathan? I think so. I think so. Yeah. So, what did yeah. you do when you left? I was doing some public relations work, uh, a little bit with nonprofits. I worked for the Air Force, um, and then I kind of dabbled back in the jewelry industry by working for a retail jeweler and doing their marketing for a few years. Um, I also said I was never moving back to Detroit, but that's what brought me back to Detroit, and I realized, oh, I kind of I like helping out with this. I could do this all the time. Yeah. So, Gem Legacy was actually really being born right around that time when I was uh, rejoining the family business, and my dad has always um, traveled to sourcing communities and tried to buy his gemstones as close to the source as possible so that he could have a clear conscience that the gemstones he buys and sells are having a positive impact on um, the local communities. Uh, and somebody said to him, you know, the whole industry should be part of this. Why, why not? Like, there isn't an avenue for the industry to give back. There's not a vehicle for people who don't travel to sourcing communities if they want to contribute. And so Gem Legacy was kind of born by this vision that the whole industry could, um, the the consumers, the lovers of gemstones globally could give back to where gemstones come from. Yeah. And take us, when it was born, you were on a a trip in Africa, right? With a couple consumers or a couple of your customers. And, And how did it happen? 
So, uh, yeah, we had a, a group of about a dozen people with us and uh, some consumers, some who are retail jewelers here in the United States. And um, there was one, her name is Chris Clover. She's a retail jeweler in California. Mm-hmm. And we know Chris, yeah. Uh, just a very much an, a creative idea person. And so she kind of rallied the troops and sat everyone down and said, this needs to happen. If we all do this together and we all start it with, you know, a sum of money, then this could launch this and uh, we could share it with our consumers because consumers want to know that their purchasers are having a positive social impact, also environmental impact. I mean, all the other things we're talking about today, but like a social impact makes you feel good. You know, you're contributing back to somebody else, even as you're buying something that you enjoy. So after that, uh, we form it, formed it as a, an actual nonprofit. So it's a 501c3 uh, with the federal government, which means that all uh, donations are tax deductible. Uh, so we're, we're official. And since then, we were really shocked, actually, by the industry response and the consumer's response uh, that they had a tangible and quantifiable um, story uh, of progress, of change, of success that was happening all because gemstones are being mined. Yeah, I think it's a it's a beautiful story to tell that that hadn't been told before, really, in in such a concise way. And so, so what are some of your initiatives? What are what are your goals with Gem Legacy? Yeah, so most of our initiatives kind of were birthed themselves, uh, evolved themselves through Roger's trips there. Uh, gem dealers would say, oh, I want to introduce you to, to this orphanage. You know, I, I also am the administrator of an orphanage. It was something we've learned in Africa is no African ever has only one job. They always have multiple jobs. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, the one I was just referencing actually is in Southern Kenya. And the gentleman is a pastor, a gem dealer, and the, the administrator of this children's home that has 28 kids in it. And so the children's home was actually formed by local gem dealers who said, we have been really blessed by Savare Garnet and the other gems that come from Southern Kenya, and we want to get back to the community. And so they formed this children's home, and they actually recently funded a new home that's kind of out in the country, so the kids have space to play. Um, the home is much larger, much newer. So uh, they kind of uh, evolve themselves. They're not all specifically gem mining. For example, that's a children's home, but it is in the region of Savare Garnet and very much connected to gemstones. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, all of them are evolved through people that we've known for 10 or more years uh, so that we have relationships that we trust and we are comfortable giving the donations that have been contributed to us to steward wisely uh, and that we feel like they will be used as we meant them to be and we can check back in and ensure that uh, later on. So we focus on three areas in our initiatives. Uh, first is kids, uh, then entrepreneurship and education. And some of them kind of overlap. Um, yeah. 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 Jonathan and I had the chance to go to Africa last summer. Well, I guess last fall. And we got to visit two of the places that you contribute to. We went to the Kitterini School and to the Arusha Gem Cutting School. And both of those, you could you could just see the impact that it was having on the daily lives of the people there, especially at the Kitterini school. Um, That area has just exploded, especially even since Jonathan and I went to visit, they're mining Ruby there now. There are so many more kids going to school there now than ever before. And so the need there is growing. 
Yeah. And maybe we should talk a little more of what Gem Legacy is is doing. Uh, so through the, the, the Devon Foundation was doing it. And now we're kind of, it's all combining forces, but we're, we're feeding the kids two times a day, which is why part of why the parents are allowing them to come to school. Yeah. Yeah, so when we first started working with Kitarini, um, it must be about seven years ago now, uh, there were about 100 kids attending. And <laughs> wow. I guess it was up to 612 because, as you said, there's been this big boom just this year. Um, it's increased the past few years, but especially this year, just so much more ruby mining. So all the kids who attend the Kitarini Primary School, for those who don't know, are, are Maasai. And the Maasai are the largest tribe in East Africa. And they're traditionally nomadic, meaning they don't really have any permanent residences. They build kind of wood and mud uh, huts and are constantly moving with their herds, grazing, that sort of thing. And so because of the ruby mining, uh, the Maasai have just swarmed there and actually kind of set up most permanent homes that they're known to have. And yeah. so because their kids are attending school for the first time, kind of in the history of their tribe. So they're really changing the culture. And not that we want to lose the culture of their tribe, but um, they're realizing that the education for their children can only better their children's futures. And so uh, with the food, it guarantees that they want to attend school because traditionally the Maasai need their kids for tending their herds, helping in the home, that sort of thing. And so kids are walking up to two hours one way every day. To it's incredible. Yeah, because they get food. And so it keeps them coming back. Yeah, I think... I think that, I mean, it was just so touching to me to, to actually be able to visit, to see the library that was built. It wasn't fully completed when we were there, but there were walls and yeah. no books yet. But just to see just the happy, smiley faces of all those kids and, and the difference that we can make just by providing two meals. And they're learning English, and it, it's, it's an incredible place. It is. Actually, that's another benefit of the library because they learn English in school, uh, but they don't have any way to practice it outside of school because usually their parents don't know any English. So the more fun books in the library uh, encourage them to practice their English. Uh, and Kitarini is a great example of, uh, you know, it's a school. It's not traditionally tied gemstones, but because of gemstones, allowing these kids to stay permanently in that location. And then we create a school. We're capitalizing on the presence of gemstones to change lives, which is really what Gem Legacy is all about. Anytime we see something, um, an opportunity, a situation where we know that gems are having a positive impact, but we could capitalize that, we could increase it and expand it exponentially, those are the situations where Gem Legacy tries to enter in. Yeah, not all these kids are going to become gemstone miners or gemstone cutters, but but because of the gems that are being mined in the region, we can provide a better life for them, whatever they choose to do. Exactly. And so again, this is where gems have had a positive impact on people's lives. And you might not know it, you know, 30 years down the road, they're not in the gem industry, but as a child, their lives were changed by gemstones. We actually hear this all the time. Um, we'll sit down and talk with someone in East Africa and they'll say, well, actually, I have the job that I have today because my father was a minor, and so I was able to go to secondary school. Secondary school isn't funded by the government like it is here. It's kind of our middle school, high school. Mm -hmm. um, so most parents don't send their kids, especially girls, are usually pulled out because they marry quite young. And so they'll say, yeah, I was able to go to secondary school because my dad was a minor, so he had enough money for that. 
Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, you also do um, educational training that's not geared toward children at mine locations. Yes. So, uh, Gem Legacy loves to enter where um, people are kind of forgotten. They don't mm-hmm. have any access to knowledge or education or a way to better themselves. So, we've done in partnership with the Malawian government and the Kenyan government um, uh, gemological trainings. And so, uh, some of these were in, in cities and geared toward gem dealers and some were at mining locations in the bush and we just go and visit a village. Uh, actually I have a favorite sh- story I would love to share. Um, we were in Malawi at a road light garnet mine and, uh, I was thinking, what are we going to tell these people? Because I was really focused on gem identification and separating gemstones from each other. And of course, they're only mining one gem, so they don't really need to know that. And so we asked them through our translator, what questions do you have before we, you know, just start spouting information that isn't helpful? And the the tribe chief uh, raised his hand and, and asked us, again, through the translator, how is it possible that gemstones form in the sky? And we were all baffled. There was a group of five gemologists standing there thinking, how did, how did they come to this conclusion? Ah. And they explained to us that every morning after there's been a rain uh, storm overnight, their wives will be walking between their cornrows uh, because they're really farmers. So about 90% of East African uh, artisanal mine, uh, uh, miners are artisanal. They're small scale family uh, mining operations usually that 90%, they're really farmers. So we always joke, we don't know if they're mining farmers or they're farming miners. Because <laughs> half the year they mine and half the year they farm. So they were saying that every morning after it would rain, their wives would find between their cornrows, rotolite garnets. So first of all, I would love to be in a place where rotolite garnets literally are just sitting there waiting for you on the top of the ground. Yeah. Uh, so you can probably put it together if you think about erosion. So the gems form with heat and pressure. And so in the hills around the valley where they were living, um, the gems would have been would have been formed in those mountains. And every time it rains, the erosion brings it down to the lowest point, which is literally the tiny little valleys between their cornrows. But they had no idea that the gemstones formed deep underground long before any of us were here. So we were able to explain to them that day that the gemstones don't come from the sky. They're under your feet and they're literally there for you, like for the provision of your family. And so they had been doing hard rock mining, like serious hard rock mining with farming tools. And they were finding tiny little shards of like garnet, really thin, totally opaque, uh, worthless. And so now they're looking in a former riverbed that's at the very bottom of this valley. And it was just full of them. And now it's quite a thriving little uh, mining community. How wonderful. I mean, and Jonathan and I talk about this a lot on our podcast, which is, you know, beliefs that used to be with gemstones, how people thought topaz could cure an illness or, you know, all these, all these beliefs that we today find so um, bizarre or, you know, not scientific and that some of it still exists today. Yeah, in these small mining communities, we have access to Google. You know, um, yeah, we have they have phones, but not smartphones, and they're a good few hours out of the city, and they don't have a car, so they're only going there when it's a necessity. So they don't really have access to knowledge that that we have. So it was a little bit like I was thinking we're back in the Christopher Columbus age, where the you know the world is flat, and we don't have a reason to think otherwise because we don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, and, and just the difference that that made, just the difference that Gem Legacy going in and doing those trainings made in their, I guess, livelihood, because now they're no longer having to hard rock mine with farm tools. They're able to look and mine in more, I guess, furtive places, better places just through the education provided. Yeah. And then the other one that we talked about that we got to visit is the gem cutting school. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the gem legacies worked on a lot this year. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about the, the new machines and, and what Peter Sala is, is doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, Mr. Sala is the administrator of the school. He started in 2000 or 2001. So we're about 20 years ago and there's about 750 kids who have graduated uh, he offers a lot of different things. We really focus on the gem faceting because we're passionate about that. But he also teaches gemology, uh, gem identification, gem grading. Um, so kind of a, a range of topics that people would need to be equipped for a job in the gem, um, in the gem industry. Uh, but we have always supported with scholarships. He's really passionate about pe- bringing people in who can't afford to attend themselves. And we were trying to kind of follow up with some scholarship recipients after they'd graduated. And we discovered that they weren't really able to obtain jobs in gem faceting centers in East Africa because uh, the employers were saying that their skills weren't really up to snuff uh, for modern day techniques. So we took a look at the machines that they're using there and they were used when they were donated to the school 20 years ago. Um, So they're really antiquated a lot of them are honestly really broken and there are really two different camps of faceting styles. And so these are Asian machines uh, that were never really intended to be precision faceting machines. Um, If you were trying to cut very small gemstones very quickly, mass production, this would be the type of machine you would use, but it wasn't the machine that's now being used in 2019 in uh, East African cutting centers. And so we pulled some different cutting centers there and their managers, and we discovered that there, there's really two different machines that they were using, uh, but we have a, a relationship with Facetron here in the United States. And so we decided to pause uh, funding scholarships and to get rid of all the old machines that they had and fundraise for precision-made, uh, precision-faceting, American-made faceting machines uh, that would allow them to leave and actually be equipped for the jobs that they're applying for. So this year, we funded five new machines. Um, and they're all set up there. Uh, we got a bunch of new accessories. There's lots of accessories with uh, faceting. You need laps of different grits, and you need yeah. sticks, and you need wax, and you need alcohol. And, and so there's lots of things that go with it. And we also had um, a gentleman, his name is Dan Lynch, and he is an expert on the Facetron machine and was willing to go and donate his time with two and a half days of training. So he really trained the teachers of the school along with the current students, but he focused on the teachers so that they can then teach the next generation. So uh, yeah, we're really thrilled with the industry response and we'll keep supporting with uh, machines, but right now we're focused on going back to scholarships and kind of testing out that new philosophy and uh, what happens with a group who graduates and how they're able to get jobs. I think it's important too, not just for the kids that receive the scholarship and the knowledge, but also for the country as a whole, because you're keeping the cutting where the gems are mined. So you're adding the value there instead of exporting it where value is added elsewhere. And so I think that's, that's the positive thing is it's, 
it's bringing more money into the country just by them having the knowledge and being able to cut the gemstones at the source. Right, right. And and let's let's clarify a little bit for people like they they hear these these initiatives. Let's let's assign some dollars to these that if people want to get involved and want to donate, like what small amounts of money can, can do. I mean, we can obviously start with you know the bigger one, which was how much how much were these fastening machines? If someone actually wanted to donate another whole fastening machine, what are, what are we looking at for cost of of those? Yeah, so Facetron was really gracious and has given us a discount since we're doing this for charity. So each machine is $3,200. Um, but also like the laps, some of those start at $50, $50 up to like 300 per lap. So even a donation of $50 means that we're creating a whole little station that's fully equipped for somebody to work there and, and have the right tools to accurately facet. Um, to send one uh, one young adult through that um, scholarship program, it's four months long. That's seven hundred and fifty dollars. Um, we often support some of the orphanages with school fees for secondary school. Like we said, the government doesn't fund that. That's five hundred and fifty dollars for one whole school year. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to think what else you probably know better. Some of the numbers for the Kitterini, um yeah, so the Kitterini School, it's a little bit different. So um, Ken, uh, Tanzania actually does provide government-funded secondary school. So a lot of the kids that they asked us for to continue on, they were just looking for – they just didn't have the money supplies. for supplies. So they need a trunk, and they need books, and they need their mattress uniforms roll. and mattress roll and those kinds of things. So we were able to fund those, and those were about $250 per student, and that's for a whole school year. Um, and then some of them only need – partial funding. So some of them were like $100 and some of them were $250. And then any donation that they make for, towards the Kitterini school for food. Um, I mean, they're serving over 10,000 meals a month. I think it's more than that. Oh, it's got to be. That's why I said over. Yeah, I was going to say, because, well, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool. It's six, it's 1200 a day, Yeah, over 1200 a day times five days. So that's 6,000 meals a week, a week. Times yeah, times four weeks is twenty four thousand twenty four thousand meals a month. Yeah, and so it's you know anything that anything that anyone can donate anywhere from five dollars and you know mm-hmm. and up makes a huge difference. And it's something that there's ongoing need. I mean, we've we've promised this school, which is a government funded school. We've promised the school since the food isn't part of that government funding. We've promised that school to keep that up. So we've got that outgoing constantly to to keep that and luckily we have great people on the ground that are willing to pick up that food and drive it to the school because there are no grocery stores there are no anywhere near the school so you're a good two two and a half hours from of a rough drive rough drive it It takes a good we went in a minivan and i don't think that minivan was there it's really more of a four-wheel drive road to get there and you're 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 about two and a half hours from arusha which is the the closest major city with a real grocery store so these supplies have to be transferred back and forth which takes fuel which takes tires which takes and same with these schools the the kids that were sitting on the primary school um in tanzania a lot of them live like they said they were walking up to two hours so they had they were assigned to different um secondary schools so they needed transportation so that they could get their stuff to that school they could get checked in they could also so their families could could visit and spend time with them because it is it's boarding school for secondary school um so it's it 
Goodsall, anything really helps. And that's something that we've really, um, we had a, we, when we were there, we had a kid who had already finished his, he'd already finished his, his exams. Yeah, he was graduating from the, but he walked over an hour each way just to come ask us for funding to help because um, his father was no longer with him and he was one of many kids and his mother couldn't send him. So he came specifically to ask us to help. So that's something that we, that we at Parlay are specifically focused on is the Kitterini school, both for feeding meals and making sure that any kid that wants to go on to secondary school can. At the time, probably about two years ago, I was really thinking there has to be something more we can do as an industry. Right. There has to be some way for us to give back. And I think that's where the gem legacy has really come in because, you know, you have the diamonds fund or initiative and color color was kind of its own thing. Yeah. Everything is very artisanal in color gemstone mining. Very much, yeah. You could go visit a mine and and give the miner some money or pay fair price for the material you get from them, but there was really no way of impacting a, a whole community. Right, for sure. And and it was really cool. Like we our supplier when we told them we wanted to go to the school, they were like, why why do you want to do that? And then they came with us and they were like, wow, this is so great that they pledged money towards it as well. So it's not just what you can do, but also sharing the story with other people so it, so it grows. Yeah. I was going to say one of the reasons we're excited to have you on the leadership council is you guys were already committed to this you know, before, before we even started working together. But um, what Jonathan was just saying, you committed to long term. You're not going to stop funding the, the uh, breakfast and lunch program. And so Jum Legacy is dedicated to looking at any situation we enter and say, is this actually sustainable giving? Because we don't want to, um, you know, have them become dependent on us. We're trying to supplement and encourage growth and success and for them to expand their businesses, expand their mining or dealing or gem faceting uh, industries. And so if we can encourage growth, that's really what we want to do so that it's a long-term partnership. We never want to go in and, you know, exit back out of something. We want them to know that um, we, they can depend on us in a good year and a really not great year. What are you most proud of? You've been doing this for over a year now. What are you most proud that you guys have been able to accomplish so far? Gosh, I think there's a, a couple different uh, angles on that. First, uh, just the response from from everybody, uh, people who are in the jewelry industry, people who just love buying gemstones and jewelry. Uh, the response was really kind of overwhelming, actually. Uh, and it allowed us to do much larger things in one year than we ever expected. Um, an example, like how quickly things came together was last December, we were fundraising for a compressor for the Precious Women Mine. So it's a group of eight uh, widowed women who are mining for Savorite Garnet. And they were doing it with, again, farming tools and hard rock mining. And so when we asked them what they needed, they said a compressor. And it allows you to bring oxygen to the end of the mine and also to use power tools like a jackhammer. So they would make much faster progress. And we did a bunch of quotes and talked to a bunch of people. And it looks like it was going to be about $9,500, which was much larger than anything we had done. We'd only been really formed for a few months. And so we put that message out to the uh, jewelry industry and they also shared it with their clients. And we had that money in less than six weeks. And we, yeah. And three weeks later, the compressor was actually 
in at the mine, at the mine location, which you guys know when you travel to Africa, nothing works quickly in Africa. We call it Africa time in our family. It's always yeah. very slow. So to have something happen that quickly was really exciting. And it was such a tangible thing to see uh, everybody like come together. And it's what happens when we work together. None of those donations were large. Um, I think the largest donation of that 9500 was $1,000. But there were tons and tons of just $50 or $100 donations that all added up really quickly. And within three months, we were there visiting and were able to see it in action. And they've made vastly more progress. So just like how quickly things can happen when we work together, I think is what's been most exciting for me. Yeah. And I think Gem Legacy as a whole, as, a, as an organization, is super agile. So you're able to adapt to the need almost immediately. Yes. And actually, that's something that I, I think we want to stay true to. It's a great point, Brecken, because um, we, we're there a couple times a year. And so when we see a need, we want to be able to come back to you guys and say, hey, do we all agree? Is this something we should do? We can act on it immediately and effectively while there is that need and have that, that quantifiable change that we want to stay true to. Yeah. And so what are you most excited about going forward? Uh, so I guess in 2020, I am excited to get some more people on board. Um, we would like to keep adding to the leadership council and, and really form a coalition of gem dealers and, and people in the jewelry industry who are committed to this. Um, so it's a whole industry vision that's, um, that's cast and people can latch on to. Um, I think we're really excited. We're looking at a few new initiatives for 2020. Um, some in Tanzania, some in Kenya. And I think um, the beauty of working with other people and having there be that partnership between gem dealers is that we can expand to other countries. So a lot of yeah. people often ask, why, why are you only in Tanzania, Kenya, and Malawi? And the reason is really just that we had set up relationships there and that's where we travel. So we were able to see firsthand the, the need. And you know, if we're going to accept donations, we want to wisely um, use them. Uh, so with other people's connections and other boots on the ground in other places, I think we can expand. So we're excited to do that, uh, cautiously, but, uh, but make it well planned out and, and definitely, uh, expand so that it's a global initiative. Um, oh yeah, that's my vision. Yeah. I want to see it everywhere, but I know that's going to take time. <laughs> everywhere. You mean everywhere that there's need. Everywhere there's need. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so we need to do it. it I don't think yeah, we need to do it in Montana. <laughs> I don't think we need to do it in Australia. Where we're needed. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but truly gems come from so many cool places. So why not? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, so we do have a question that we ask every person that we interview and it is, what is your first memory of a gemstone or jewelry? Think way back. What started it all? Especially with her history. Yeah, with your history, it should be early. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think which one of these two memories is first. I don't. I can hear my parents talking in the womb, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was when I was uh, my mom was pregnant with me, the the joke among Zelda jewelry friends was, "Were you going to name her Ruby or Opal?" Oh gosh, we went through this. We went through this too. same thing. I wanted to name one of our daughters Opal, and I was like, "Hell no!" Yeah, yeah, I got voted. <laughs> I got voted. It is my birthday. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, I think luckily for me, I didn't get either of those names. Sorry, Jonathan, don't mean to bash that name, but um, I'm not sure uh, if, I mean, I've, I've been to Tucson uh, like the first three years of my life, you know, so, uh, but I think, I, I can't remember which two this would be. One was, I was in Tucson, I must have been maybe six, and uh, my dad was buying some aquamarine from a guy, and the guy was saying like, oh, your daughter can, you know, pick a piece out, you know, just for free, she can take it home. He had no idea that I was going to put my dad's visor on and methodically go through every single piece of aquamarine <laughs> and pick the best piece. <laughs> there you go. Still had to Do you still food. have it? Um, I think I faceted it, actually, but I yeah? would have here it is. Yeah. The other would be, um, I, I think I was four, three, four. Um, and I was really excited about something. I was running around my dad's office and, um, I remember they were talking about pink tourmaline and I ran so fast. I ran right into the corner of my dad's desk and I had a black eye for about three months. Oh. <laughs> and everyone asked, about pink tourmaline. everyone asked my mom, like, you know, are you abusing your child? <laughs> <laughs> no, she's just very passionate about gemstones. <laughs> just the pink tourmaline. Yeah. It's pink. It's pink. It's probably yeah. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> pink gemstones get kids all the time. Yep. Yep. Oh yeah, well, Rachel, we want to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to educate everyone a little bit more about Gem Legacy. And would you mind telling people where they can go to learn a little bit more or maybe if they've been inspired to donate, where they can do that? Yes, absolutely. So our website is uh, gemlegacy.org, O-R-G. Uh, usually just put after that forward slash donate. It'll take you right to the donate page. And you can select which of our initiatives you would like to contribute to. And that money will then be used specifically. Uh, if there's something that we talked about that you want to donate uh, even more specifically, uh, there's a comment section there. So if you want to write down like the breakfast or lunch program at the Kitterini School, uh, put that in the notes and we'll make sure that it's used um, accurately to your desires. Um, there's lots of information on the website about each of our initiatives. Uh, if you are in the industry, there's also tons of ideas and ways that you can partner with us, ways you could fundraise. Uh, and we're always open to new ways to partner and fundraise. And we're also on social media on Facebook, just Gem Legacy. And on Instagram, we're the Gem Legacy. Now, one thing we did not talk about, which I think is one of the most important things about Gem Legacy, is that 100% of your donation goes towards the initiative. Right. And that's what's really great is that the Deary's along with other industry people have given their time and energy thing that you know that 100% of your, of your donation is going towards helping. Um, the other thing that we'd love to hear either whether you want to, if, if you do donate, it would be great if you also posted either through uh, a message on our Facebook or on our Instagram and said, hey, I donated this much towards whatever. I'm just really curious what people find is the most interesting mm -hmm. of the uh, of the initiatives so that we can kind of, uh, you know, give maybe even give you a shout out on the next podcast to kind of like say <laughs> thank, thank you. you so much yeah. for, uh, for, for donating towards this cause, which is really important to us. Yeah, and we want to thank um, Rachel and her family for the time that they, they do put into this, helping us live our dream, giving back. And I know I can't imagine the time it takes to do this. So thank you very much. We're having a fun doing it, and you know it feels good to give back, and we're so glad to have you guys on board. 
Yep. All right, you guys. Well, that will conclude another episode of Gem Junkies. I'm Brecken. And I'm Jonathan. And if you want to see what we do in our real life, you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Parlay Gems. And again, we want to say thank you to Rachel. Rachel.